0: Our time together this morning, I'm going to ask you three questions. And I want you to be prepared for those three questions, so I'm going to give them to you now. And I want you to be thinking about the answer to these three questions as we look at our text. First question. If I asked you to record one way in which you've been most convicted this morning, what would you say? What would you record? What would that be? If I ask you to to record or write down the way that you've been most convicted, what would that be? Question one. Question two. If I asked you to record one way in which you've been most encouraged by the text of Scripture this morning, what would that be? First, if I ask you to record one way you've been convicted, what would it be? Second, one way you've been encouraged. By convicted, I mean something that's just grabbed your heart and you've you've seen an an area in which you don't match up with the revelation of Scripture. By encouraged, I mean something that you say you take away from this this text as, as a great comfort to you, as a great motivation to you. And then the third question is, if I ask you to record one way you've been most challenged to change what way would that be? It's kind of like the, the sum of the first two. In other words, what way are you going to change? What difference is this text going to make in your life? That's going to be the final exam. If you fail that, I'm going to preach the sermon again. So if you value lunchtime, make sure you... I want to take you to Titus chapter 3 this morning is our text. When the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to his younger friend named Titus, at that time Titus was on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea about a hundred miles south of the Greek mainland. He was there because he was charged with setting things in order among the churches on the island of Crete. You need to know that there were many cities, many towns, I guess we could say, there on Crete, some had have estimated as many as a hundred different towns, and we don't know if each of them had a church, but uh, Titus was charged with setting things in order there and and that means things like establishing elders in every town, according to chapter one, verse five, things like teaching things that accord with sound doctrine according to Chapter two, verse one, and things like reminding people about their responsibility and role in the world in chapter three. Those are kind of the the way we would lay out this little brief little letter, this brief little epistle with those three chapters. Now, you need to understand something. You need to understand that life as a Christian in Crete was hard. Life as a Christian in Crete was very hard hard. I don't know if you can imagine the extent of the moral corruption of that day, but it was absolutely rampant. To be a Cretan, to be from Crete, was to be automatically qualified or characterized as a lazy, lustful liar, according to chapter 1, verse 12. The people there, I mean, the people were there were characterized as being habitual liars. They were brutal in their interactions with other people, and they were enslaved to their stomachs. As you read through this letter, you can probably get the idea that drunkenness was commonplace combined with a reckless kind of living and a general manner of disorderly conduct towards life. Some actually, in Crete, some actually boasted of having as many as two dozen wives or husbands. The tax code was not just out of control, but it was scandalously depraved as tax collectors were nothing more than extortionists who took what was not theirs. Spiritually, Crete was a religious hodgepodge of every kind of idol or supposed Furthermore, according to chapter 1, verse 10, there were many insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers who were set on upsetting families and who sought their own gain as teachers who professed to know God, but who by their works denied Him. Of the society, the culture there in Crete, John MacArthur has written, unquestionably the church was engulfed uh, the, 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 the area was engulfed in idolatry and all of the extant paganism that made up the Greek and Roman world of the time. Titus then, he says, had these churches, churches as little pockets of righteousness in a sewer of paganism and needed to instruct them about how to react to the culture around them. That's pretty vivid. The, the, the churches there are little pockets of righteousness in a sewer of paganism. That was the kind of world in which the church was born on that island, which consisted of about 650 miles of coastland in the Mediterranean Sea. And basically, Paul says, Titus, I have you there in order to organize them, chapter 1, verse 5, teach them, chapter 2, verse 1, and remind them, chapter 3, verse 1. In this letter, he reminds them or he he lays out the necessity of godly leadership in chapter 1, godly laity or godly people in chapter 2, and godly living in chapter 3. And chapter 3 this morning is going to be our emphasis. Chapter 3, we're going to focus on this issue of godly living. In fact, I'd like to frame it like this. In Titus chapter 3, we're going to talk about faithful living in the midst of a faithless, difficult, and harsh world. Look with me at Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, when we come to Titus chapter 3, we immediately notice the, the very first imperative. Remind them. Titus is commanded to remind them. He is supposed to continually bring something to the attention, not just of the potential leaders whom he's supposed to appoint, but to everyone in the church. Now, why do you think Paul would tell Titus to remind them? Probably because they are prone to what? Forget. They're prone to forget. Why? Why do we forget things? Have you ever wondered that? I've told you before. I could be here at the office and my wife could could call me and say, when are you coming home? I say, I'm coming home right now. She'll say, okay, stop at Turkey Hill and get a gallon of milk on your way home. I say, okay, I'll do that. And on the way home, I pull into the driveway, walk in, and she goes, where's the milk? And I say, what? What milk? You know? How is it possible that in 10 minutes I can absolutely forget what she said? Well, honestly, she's not here this morning, so I'll confess to you. Sometimes I just don't pay attention. And sometimes we just don't pay attention. That's because, you know why that is? Because there are so many other things going on around us and so many other things going on inside of us that we just tend to get distracted. Isn't that exactly what happens? This is what happened to you this week. You got so distracted throughout this week by so many things, so many things going on in our world today, so many things going on in your own head and your own mind, in your own life, that you tend to forget things. And brothers and sisters, can I say this simply? That's why we're here this morning. That's why we're gathered together this morning. We've come to church in order to be reminded. We've come to church to have things brought before our minds from which we might have gotten distracted throughout the week with all of the crazy things going on around us and in us. This is really the core element, when you think about it, the core element of pastoral ministry. And it is an essential part of our sanctification. Paul says this many times to so Timothy. He said, remind them of these things. It's an, it's an essential part of pastoral ministry. Peter said, as he wrote his last epistle, second epistle, he said, I am going to give myself to reminding you think of these things until I die. Well, guess what? This morning, that's what I want to do. I want to remind you. I want to I put something before your mind. I want to, in the midst of all the craziness of this week, you probably have forgotten Or at least you've become distracted in some way. So this morning, I want to remind you of three important factors for you and I to live faithfully in the midst of a faithless world. Three important factors for you and I to live faithfully in the midst of a faithless world. What are they? One, our Christian obligation. Our Christian obligation. Two, our Christian motivation. And three, our Christian commission. So just think of those three words, obligation, motivation, and commission, as we work through our text this morning, which will help you understand how to live faithfully in the midst of a faithless world. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, I want you to note with me our Christian obligation. Our Christian obligation. This is something that we are, are bound to. It's something we're obligated to. As you read this letter, you'll, and, and maybe you'll want to do that later today, just take some time to read through the, the first the, the, the three chapters of this letter. You will notice, and, and I'm not sure I noticed this before this week, but you'll notice that Paul keeps up on bringing up one thing. He keeps on emphasizing one thing in this letter. And you know what it is? It's the subject of good works. Look with me. Look at chapter 1, just take a time here. Chapter 1 verse 16. Speaking of false teachers, they profess to know God but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient. Look underline this. Unfit for any, here's the phrase, good work. Chapter 2 verse 7. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of what? Good works. Even the same kind of idea there in chapter two, verse 10, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, that they might it's essentially good works. Chapter two, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for. Here's our phrase. Good works. Three one. Be ready for every good work. Three eight. Careful to devote themselves to. Good works, 314, devote themselves to good works. He has his mindset on these good works. Now, I was thinking about that and I was wondering, well, what are good works? I mean, sometimes we use these phrases, but we don't really think what they are. And and I went through the scriptures and I found that good works could be referring to the testimony of your life. The testimony of your life that, that's lived before others and that testimony which just lived for the glory of God. Matthew 5, 16, right? Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Good works refer to the, just the tenor and testimony of your life which is intended for the glory of God. According to 1 Timothy chapter 5, I mean, listen to this. Good works could be referring to Things like bringing up children. It's a good work to bring up children. To, to be hospitable. To serve the saints. To care for the afflicted. Those are good works. According to Acts chapter 9 verse 36. Charitable living. And charitable giving. That's a good work. This is interesting. First Timothy chapter 2 verse 10. Dressing modestly. And living godly. That's a good work. Colossians 1.10, living a life that is pleasing God. Ephesians 2.10, he says we're saved in order to live or to, to, to do the works that were charted before the foundation of the world. In First Peter 2.12, it is referring to conduct which is honorable among the unsaved and causes them to glorify God. Ultimately, we are all going to give an account for our works before God one day. We are going to give an account for what we've done in this body. The good works that the Scriptures is talking about. Paul says he is, he is really emphasizing this issue of good works. That's really the heart of this letter. And, and the chapter begins with remind them. Titus, remind them. In other words, don't let them forget as they are living in the midst of so many distractions. Think about how many distractions you're living in the midst of today. As you're living in in the midst of so many distractions, don't forget that you have a Christian obligation in this world. You can't live a life as a Christian that's disconnected from this world. And Paul's concern for the practical application of our life and its connection to this present world. And what he does here in this, talking about this obligation, is he shows us this obligation in terms of relationships to two specific groups of people. To leaders and to everyone else. To the ruling authorities. Remind them, he says, to be submissive, and here's the first group, to rulers and authorities. Civil, governmental authorities. Those just, and, and, and not, to mention, not, not, not to mention, just the general structure of authority in life. We are, we are not to be anarchists. We're not to be men and women who are uh, our own authority in life. Now, as he talks about our relationship, remember, we're talking about what it means to live faithfully in the midst of a faithless world, and we're talking about this in terms of our obligation. We have to understand our obligation before ruling authorities. And I want you to think, what, is, what kind of a position are we in? You see what he says, remind them to be, and here's the word everybody loves, right? Submissive. The point here seems to be that the Christian is to be reverent in his attitude toward the authorities with a mind toward obeying. That's always the goal, friends. The Christian sets out to obey ruling authorities, not to try to buck and oppose them. Now, this had specific bearing on the people there in Crete because there was this overall aversion, as it is with everybody, but specifically there in Crete, there was this overall aversion To authority. We need to remember that governing authorities, specifically as we talk about civil authorities, even those we don't like have been instituted by God, which is why I'm referring to this as our position before them. I want to call attention to our position, our our posture. We have to understand that the authorities which are have been established by God. In fact, in Romans 13, Paul even refers to authorities as God's deacons, God's servants. And you and I must be careful to be in a position of submission to God when it comes to these authorities. Our first inclination ought not to be to try to find any possible way that we can to disobey. Of course, you understand God has given us instruction that we must obey God rather than man. He's the one to whom we must always be in subjection. But I want you to think of this in a different flavor, a different way, different perspective. When you think of our position under God, under God's appointed authorities... What I mean is that you and I cannot think that we can just sit back and not be connected to what is going on in our world. That would be very easy, maybe even desirable. I would think that it would be very easy to be so distracted and so discouraged By the nonsensical activities within our government, within our world, just the general folly of people and things, and to simply want to withdraw from any more engagement. Practically, I would like to completely stop voting. I would like to completely stop being involved to whatever extent I can be. Why? Because of the craziness that's going on. But guess what? As a Christian... I don't have that option. God has given our nation today over to judgment by turning us over to our sin. I am called nonetheless to seek to influence the people of this land for good, just like Jeremiah reminds the, the, uh, those who were uh, out of their homeland in Jeremiah 29.7, the, the exiles. There is an obligation that we have to ruling authorities, and that obligation is first seen in our position where we recognize our place in God's plan. Our position. But not only do we recognize our position, we recognize our preparation. I love what he says there. Remind them to be submissive to rulers, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work rather than withdrawing from society or rather than thinking that because you are a Christian, you really don't have any temporal or present obligations in this world, we are to understand that our Christianity really presses us to pursue being a good and beneficial citizen, even in a faithless world. In whatever way we're connected to this present world, we're always to be looking for the opportunity to shine the light of our Father in heaven. In other words, we're to be ready See what he says to be ready for every good work. When you think of someone who is ready, you don't think of somebody whose you know hairs all disheveled and he's still got sleepy in his eye and he's kind of like sitting back. You see someone who is ready, right? Ready to perform. Ready for that the, the, the opening of the door to do whatever is necessary. We're to be ready for whenever God opens the door for our good works, which are intended to draw attention to him. The thought of the Christian in a faithless world is not one of complaining and despairing and despising. The thought of the Christian is, I wonder when God is going to open the door for me to turn the spotlight on him. We're to be always ready for that. Always ready to show up with a good work in whatever circumstances God may ordain. And this really, as you can imagine, creates quite a positivity in the way we approach things rather than the characteristic negativity with which we approach things. You see, a Christian is concerned with things like how I am prepared for good works. Which good works? He says all of them. At any time you are to be prepared. It's like, it's like whenever you're like a tree getting ready to sprout forth fruit, to sprout forth the vegetation, right? Just at the right moment those good works come out. And that's our obligation to ruling authorities. An obligation that senses our, our position. We we understand how God is ordained, even in issues we don't like and don't necessarily agree with, but we understand our position that God's not outside of control, or that God's not out of control. And recognizing our preparation that we are, as Christians, we're just walking around always ready to flower forth the good work that draws attention to God. But not only do we have an obligation to ruling authorities, we have an obligation to all men in general. Do you see how he says that in verse 2? He, he brings attention to our, our words, to speak evil of no one, to avoid Quarrelling. Now, remember, I ask you. I gave you the the the, uh, questions of the final exam. If I ask you to record one way in which you've been most convicted, what would it be? One way you've been most encouraged, what would it be? One way you've been most challenged to change, what would it be? Listen to this. We live faithfully as we speak evil of absolutely no one. That's the force of the text. Now the word here is the word that speaks of slander blaspheming it's a reference to seeking to hurt someone's character the psalmist prayed let not the slanderer be established in the land psalm 140 verse 11 we're not to be slanderers seeking to be uh, to assassinate someone with our, our words In addition, we're not to be, to to that, we're not to be word wrestlers. That is to be one who is always getting into verbal battles, verbal shouting matches, referring to being a contentious person. Speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling. In other words, if we are to live faithfully in a faithless world, we must give careful consideration to our words. And I'm not talking, listen, I'm not talking about not calling out sin I'm not talking about not boldly standing for the truth. No, not at all. In fact, more so in this day and age. But our words must reveal a heart that is set on, that is intent on the glory of God and the welfare of others. Yes, let us speak boldly and passionately in this day and with great clarity as we live for ambassadors of Christ. But let us speak with a a guarded intention And not only our words, but then our attitude. And this really uh, helps to firm up what he means when he says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. He means to be gentle. That's the attitude. It's the opposite of what he just said, is to have a gentleness about us. This is the sweet reasonableness. It is to be forbearing. You are not to be a holder of grudges. Unfortunately, bitterness is often the characteristic of professing Christians, especially in this world bitter about our family, bitter about our job, bitter about our life lot in life, bitter about the, 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 the ruling authorities, bitter, bitter, bitter. And then he, he, he swings right into from watching our words to our attitude to our actions. And look what he says. I love how he says this, and I just want to draw your attention to it. He says, and to show, the ESV has, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The word translated courtesy is the word meekness. And what is that? I told you a few weeks ago it's accepting less than what we think we deserve. It's the opposite of being occupied with yourself. One man was wrestling with this text and he said that meekness is not never getting angry, but it's getting angry at the right time and the right measure and for the right reason. We are obligated before a faithless world to act in a way that shows gentleness, the gentleness of a strong character that's not, that, that doesn't easily blow up. This is an obligation. And he's saying this to the, the people on Crete where this is completely different than anyone would ever expect, than, than anyone ever lived. To which you might say, what in the world would motivate me to live like that? And I say, I'm glad you asked. Because Paul tells us, what would motivate us to live like that? What would help us in this Christian obligation? Well, he shows us the Christian motivation in verses 3 through 7. Do you see how he connects it there in verse 3? four? because we ourselves... This identifies the reason, the basis of, the motivation for following through with this kind of living. You might say, you better help me. You better give me something to help me because I can't live like that on my own. Verses 1 and 2 are really, really difficult unless you give me some help. And that's right. Because I want to know how do I get to the point of where I'm not a contentious slanderer. How do I get to the point where I'm not a contentious slanderer, but rather gently reasonable toward people? Friends, your heart, in order to get there, your heart's got to be soft before the Lord. Listen, by when I say that your heart's got to be soft before the Lord. I'm not saying that you that you're not to be a bold witness for Christ. I'm not saying you don't call out sin. But I'm saying that you don't call that, that you call out sin without the characteristic slander and contentiousness that defines a faithless world. How do you get a soft heart? Do you ever ask that question? A few weeks ago on Wednesday night I was commenting that I was listening to a Keith Green song and he was introducing that song uh, and he said that he had noticed a, a, a hardness, a callousness in his heart and and he said, he, he said, I wrote a letter to the Lord. He said, I didn't know where to send it, so I put it in my Bible. He said, I, I wrote this letter. I said, Lord, you've got to do something about my heart. Because my heart's hard, and it's callous, and I need, to be, I need it to be like baby's skin, Lord. Would you make my heart like the skin of a baby? How do you get your heart softened? Yesterday, I, uh, I got some steaks out of the fridge. They're about that thick, they're ribeyes. And, and I want it to be really good. I want it to be juicy. Nothing bothers me more than a tough steak. And I realize that if that piece of meat is going to be soft, there's, there's three things that have got to happen, at least one of three things, but preferably all three. And it's a perfect illustration of what it means or the way that we get a soft The way that you get a piece of meat softened is, first of all, you marinate it. I'm not supposed to tell you this, but the secret to Chick fil A's soft, tender chicken is they soak it in pickle juice. I don't know, I'm just guessing. <laughs> if I am, they'll sue me, but anyway, you gotta marinate it. You gotta soak in another element, and, and so that you take on the the, 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 the characteristics of that element. I tell you the what your heart will become softened when you are marinated in the presence of God. When you, rec, when you begin to take in the characteristics of holiness and right, your, your heart becomes soft. Your heart gets soft. You soften a piece of meat and through, through marinating it. Sometimes you soften a piece of meat by beating the snot out of it. I mean, you got to beat that. you got to hammer it, and you got to tenderize it. And sometimes that's the way our hearts get softened, right? You ever have a two-by-four moment with God where he took good aim and just cracked you upside the head? Those trials, tribulations, heartaches, heartbreaks, difficult times. Some of you know what I mean. And that has a way, I've seen it, that has a way of just, we, we talk about having a broken heart. That has a way of breaking down the hard fibers of our spiritual heart. You know what else i found? Not only is meat tenderized when you, when you marinate it and when you tenderize it with a mallet, but when it's aged. Have you noticed that the more that you mature, the softer, the more pliable you become? Spiritually, the more that you mature, the more that you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, something happens to your heart, doesn't it? How can we get that kind of heart? Paul helps us by giving us this motivation and this this helps to to marinate us it helps to to tenderize us it helps to age us What does he do He speaks of this this motivation is first of all he says he calls to mind your previous sinfulness That will really soften you When he says this is what this is what Nathan did to To David, the prophet Nathan, you are the man. Look what he says in verse 3. For we ourselves, it's like for him to say, for you were once like this. Notice what he says. Notice who you used to be. We just talk honestly. We were once foolish. What does it mean to be foolish? It means to be unintelligent. It means to be senseless in terms of grasping the self-evident truths about God. You've got to come to grips with this, friends. This is really important for the Cretans. It's really important for us. They were living in their foolishness on their happy way to hell. And Paul says that we are to stop. We are to remember how utterly foolish we were. We were utterly foolish. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. Just turn back there for a moment, if you will. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. I love how he says this. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Think about our previous sinfulness. How foolish we were. And not just foolish, but we are characterized by our continual obedience, disobedience toward God. Our foolishness gave rise to our disobedience. I think about that how we live listen listen to what peter said this is this is the second peter passage i was going to tell you about second peter chapter 4 when i saw this verse th- this, this verse just became my my life verse i said second peter i mean first peter chapter 4 first peter chapter 4 because there aren't 4 chapters in second peter first peter chapter 4 since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, for the, but for the will of God. Here's what got me. Look at this. For the time that passes suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. Like you said that. I spent a lot of my past lifetime living like that in this utter disobedience. Not only were we foolish, not only disobedient, but Paul says in in Titus chapter 3, we were deceived. We were deceived. We were led astray. Easily and eagerly led astray. Satan is the one who deceives the whole world. Revelation 12, 9. He is the one who blinds the minds to the glories of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, we were disobedient, deceived fools. That will, har- oh, that will soften your heart when you recognize what, how you used to be. and Not only how you used to be, but what you used to do. You see what? It's- Slaves to various passions and pleasures. We lived in various passions and pleasures. That's referring to the lusts. Lust for sinful pleasure. He says that we were enslaved. That's, that's how you're to think about your previous sinful life. You were a slave to sin. The insatiable pursuit of self-satisfaction with sinful and wicked pleasures was the master of your life. That's how you and I live. Furthermore, it just keeps getting bad, worse. He says we passed our days in malice and envy. Is that not terrible? Malice is a reference to the viciousness of our character. And envy refers to always craving what others have. Not just that, but the idea of being angry at others for having those things. And maybe you're thinking right now, no, that wasn't me. That does not accurately describe me. I want to ask you to please let it sit with you for a moment, but let me say this as well. Realize that left to yourself and apart from the work of God, this is what you would have become. He says hateful and hating one another, character and conduct, attitude and action listen i 've seen it i 've seen it in the church. We do a really good job of covering of creating cover ups for these kind of things but i 've been in homes with nice little professing christians i 've been in homes at at midnight when i 've heard things come out of people 's mouths and i 've seen looks in people 's eyes that i i'd never Could believe. Christians, they do all these kinds of nice things on the outside in their home. They're just seething, professing Christians. They're just seething with envy and malice and hatred. And kids, I want to say something to you this morning. I want you to listen to me. I want you to understand that left to yourself, kids. If you, it left to yourself, apart from the work of God and his grace, which has come to you, God's grace has come to you through your parents. Apart from that, this is what you'll be. This is what you'll be. He says. That if you want to be properly motivated for the kind of for, for following through with the kind of obligation we have, you got to remember your previous sinfulness. That's a way of humbling you. But thankfully, he doesn't stop there. If that text ended just there, what would we do? But the text doesn't end there. He goes on, verse four. But, aren't you glad for that? But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, stop. That doesn't seem to match what we've just heard. But when the loving, the the, the goodness and loving kindness of our God, of God and our Savior appeared, he not only talks about our previous sinfulness, but he talks about our present salvation. Our previous sinfulness motivates us, but our present salvation motivates us. This is the, 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 the part of the text that's probably one of the most beautiful, theologically rich sections in all of the scripture. Most people believe that this was a baptism hymn or a baptism confession. It was probably what the early church would have confessed as brothers and sisters were baptized into Christ. And it so wonderfully expounds and explains the depths of grace, of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. When, the, when He says here, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. That's no doubt a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. You want your heart to be softened? Think about the sovereign intervention of God in your life through the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the basis? On what basis did God save you? Thankfully, he saves on the basis of his generosity and not our goodness. Do You see that? When the goodness and loving kindness of, our God, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us. Would you keep your finger in Titus chapter 3? And I just want to point something out to you in the book of Luke. Just this very quick um, characteristic of God. Luke chapter 6, verse 35. I want you to get this. Luke 6, 35. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. Now, look at this. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Praise the Lord. We're here today because God is kind to the evil and ungrateful. He saves on the basis of his generosity and not our goodness. He he saves on the basis of his mercy and not our merit. You see how he says that? He saved us not because of works done uh, by righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It was his pity that moved him. He, He didn't depend on us to to put forth uh, our goodness. And then he just kind of topped it off. It was, he saved according to his mercy. Not our merit. And he saved according to his work. Based on his work. Not our worth. Not because of works done in righteousness. But rather by his work. What is his work? Well he says the work is the washing of regeneration. And renewal of the Holy Spirit. What is the washing of regeneration? Just very quickly I'll give you this picture. This leads us to Exodus chapter 30, and I'll just tell you about it quickly. You don't have to turn there. But in Exodus chapter 30, there's a reference there to the bronze laver, to the bronze basin that was being placed in the courtyard of the tabernacle after the altar of burnt offering. You see, the priest could not just go in any old time and in any old way because he was entering the presence of God. He had to go in, uh, into the presence of God on God's term. He needed the burnt offering demonstrating his devotion. He needed the sin offering demonstrating his redemption. But he also needed this ceremonial wash, which would demonstrate the purity of his life. And Paul says in Titus chapter three, he says that God saved us. How? By washing us. Same picture as Paul tells the Corinthians and such were some of you. By washing us, by cleansing us, that is wiping away our sin. Now stick with me here. How did he wipe away our sin? How did he cleanse us from that wickedness, that filth that we just expounded in the previous verses? By regeneration. That is a reference to being born again. This was by the Spirit. And listen to these words, friends. He gave you a clean slate. He gave you a new life. And he did it, not you. You are a new creation in Christ. All of those things are true about how we were and who we were and how we lived. We were like that, but now, praise the Lord, you and I are new creations in Christ. That's what the word renewal means. When he uses that word renewal, it's like this testament, this testimony referring to causing something to be new and different. That will soften your heart when you realize how wicked and vile you are on your own and how good and kind God is toward you in Christ you got to be reminded, don't, don't you? Because sometimes you forget. Sometimes you begin to give in to other things and your heart just gets hard. You get, you get distracted by all the noise that's out there and you forget this. That's the basis of our salvation. And that basis has, that foundation has fruits. Not only does it have a a basis, but it has benefits. Let me just hurry on here. Look at the benefits of salvation. Verse, the end of verse 5. Renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The presence of the Holy Spirit, one of the most grand and glorious Listen, one of the most grand and glorious benefits, fruits of our salvation is not only the Holy Spirit, according to Romans chapter 5, pouring out in our hearts the love of Christ, but Jesus Christ pouring out the Holy Spirit in our lives without limits. Romans 8, the Spirit is the one who energizes our spiritual life. Guides us into righteousness. Ephesians 1 guarantees the the, our spiritual life, grants us assurance, Romans chapter 8. Ephesians chapter 4 gifts us to serve Him and to be served by others. You see, you, you look at that obligation, you think, man, that is a mountain. I cannot climb. But God says, do you understand what I have done for you in pouring out for you richly without limits the gift of the Holy Spirit? Not only does he say, I have given you this, the wonderful benefit of the the presence of the Holy Spirit. But think about this, the benefit of your position before God. What is that position? Look at this, verse uh, 7, so that being justified by his grace. Your position before God is a position of being justified. That does not mean just as if I've never sinned. It means the, the act of God whereby he declares a guilty sinner to be righteous. Praise the Lord. You are justified. That's your position. You stand as, as uh, free from the guilt and free from the penalty of sin. You, you stand as being righteous in God's eyes. You were a guilty sinner, but God, by His grace, justified you. What benefits the, the presence of the Spirit and our position as justified, and then our placement in God's family. He says this that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our placement to be in the family of God this is literally to have eternal life. You think you can't live faithfully in a faithless world? Listen. He says, Titus, you got to insist on this. That's what he says in the next verse. you got to insist on this, Titus. That is, you must confidently declare these things. You must consistently declare these things. Why? Because this is actually what gives you strength to live faithfully in a faithless world. Listen, friends. Get your mind off of the stock market and off of the continual moral decline of our society and the evil of wicked men. And if you, if you put your, your, your mind on those things, you're going to lose it. You're going to become bitter and agitated and you'll slander and hate and revile. But listen, when you remember what you were and how you lived and to think that God, how God saved a wicked and vile sinner, you start thinking, if he can save me, then what? He can save anyone. And you surrender yourself then to being the kind of person through whom that same sovereign God can continue to extend His grace to other sinners. You are always ready. And see, that's what leads us from the obligation to the motivation to the commission. And I'll try to hurry, verses 8 through 11. You need to know that there is a connection between faithful preaching and Christian living. Verse 8. This saying is trustworthy. Trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. Be confident in this, Titus. Insist on it. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In other words, the faithful distribution, the faithful proclamation of godly truth is what serves as the impetus for godly Christian living. You... He says, affirm this constantly so that those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. What is our commission? We are commissioned to be devoted to good works. that's, that's, That's what, and that word devoted is an interesting word. It's a word like, that means there's something that's always in front of us. Something that's always on my mind and in my heart. And what is always to be in my mind and what is always to be in my heart is this, this issue of good works. Be careful and considerate to constantly keep the necessity of good works before you. And you can never relax on this. You can never just take a break. You are always keeping the necessity of good works before you. Why? Because, listen, salvation comes to people through the testimony of, and godly life of godly people. You're commissioned to be devoted to good works. You are commissioned, furthermore, to be fruitful for people. These things, he says, are excellent and profitable for people. These things have an impact. And this is where the rubber really meets the road, because most of the time we doubt that. Don't you? I have no idea how my puny little life, me living a godly life, is going to impact this dark world. When Robert Louis Stevenson was a young child, he was sick most of the time. And he couldn't go out and play like the other children. So he spent a lot of time watching at the window. And one evening it's reported that he sat and watched as the old-fashioned lamplighter came down the street lighting the lamps. And his nurse said to him, What are you doing? To which he replied, I'm watching that man knock holes in the darkness. And that's exactly what we do living faithfully in the midst of a faithless world. I don't suppose I'll ever forget the experience I had over 30 years ago one snowy day, one snowy Sunday in March in the former Soviet Union. This is going back more than 30 years ago, and we had planned to fellowship with a group of believers. And I was quite surprised to be taken out to what appeared to be the middle of nowhere to a house. I told you this before. Once we arrived at this home, we saw people all around. The modest home there was was the meeting place for the local church in that part of the world. And inside, I found that the walls in that home were constructed in such a way that they could be easily taken down in order to make room for the gathering crowd. And I had learned that this was the way that these people used to meet under the evil rule of communists. You see, even then, during the dark and difficult days, the church actually thrived. Though the fires of persecution raged and wicked rulers seemed to have their way, still God built his church. And I don't mean to imply that it was anything easy. There was nothing easy about the, those days, but the church grew It grew so much that at least in one place, they had to build collapsible walls in order that when they could meet, or that they could meet together. If I ask you to record one way in which you've been most convicted, what would that be? If I ask you to record one way that you've been most encouraged, what would that be? If I ask you for one way in which you must change, what would that be? Let's pray.